we'll jump it. Perfect. Um, are we all good? So, Blaine, by the way, it's nice to meet you. My name is Nice Dara. to meet you guys. Uh, we've been following you for for a long while. Big fans of the work. Yep. I've been following you guys as well. You guys put out some great stuff. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. We've, uh, I saw you years ago, I think Chad Wesley Smith, a couple of years ago, you were squatting in a flannel t-shirt, I think, or sleeveless <laughs> flannel shirt. Was that 240 for reps? Am I right? 250 for reps. 250. Nice. nice. What was your body weight then, actually? Uh, probably roughly about the same what it is now. I usually, I've always been between 98 to 100 kilos. Okay. 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 It's um, it's funny how those videos become like the formative thumbnail in your brain for, for who the athlete is. Because I remember when you popped up in the news, was it three years ago, about the transitioning to bobsledding? And uh, it's yeah, funny. That would that, have been... Yeah, roughly f- probably five or six years ago now. Okay. It was funny when that popped up. That was the the image I had of you in my head is that really heavy squat with the flannel sleeveless shirt on. Yeah. That I was at the training center and we had a lot of fun every time we went to the, the weight room. The, the guys group that we had was just a cool group. So we would do flannel Fridays. And every <laughs> every Friday in the gym, all the guys were just wearing flannels and it turned into cut off flannels. And then it just it was a whole different atmosphere on Fridays. You, you can all can do that when you're when you're pretty jacked and strong. Everyone can get away with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Blade, can you talk about some of that transition a small bit, how that came about? Had you ever been involved in bobsledding before? Or how that even happened? No, I've never been involved in bobsled at all before. Uh, I never even thought about being involved with it but it was an easy transition because prior to that I was doing CrossFit and I'm not somebody that's built to be doing CrossFit like I'm grew up playing American football running track like everything that I had trained and done before in the past was like power explosive and then going into CrossFit it was just like me ramming my head against the wall the whole time just doing everything that I don't like to do and it was a fun experience but then getting into bobsled it was a very easy transition because it was almost it almost took maybe three months for me to feel like I had never done crossfit before and I was just back into where I normally was training and doing everything that I like to do but I was living in San Diego there's a training center that's about 30 minutes south of San Diego and they were holding bobsled tryouts I had gotten wind of it and I was like I'll just give it a try and see how it goes and ended up doing pretty well what did those bobsled tryouts look like it's like an abbreviated combine. So if you followed the NFL combine at all, like you're going to have some sort of a, there's a, I don't remember if it was a 30 or 45 meter sprint. To, I think it was a 45 meter sprint. You do a broad jump and then you do like a underhand shot toss with a eight kilo or 10 kilo shot put. And that's kind of like the on-field stuff. And then the weight room testing that they do is a, just a one rep max power clean and then a three rep max back squat. But it's not a true max because they have kind of like if you hit a certain number, they just count that as full. Like oh, okay. for the power clean is they just go, okay, if you hit 150, it doesn't matter if you can go over that. Like we just look for 150. And if you can hit, I think it's 200 on the back squat for three, they're like, we don't care if you can go higher than that. 200 is fine. Okay. Blaine, you would have been old i suppose at the time for changing to into a professional olympic level power sports correct what age would you've been then i started bobsled at 30 yeah right around like 30 years old which is you know 
pretty like it's it's hilarious that in power sports and stuff like this that we think someone who was 30 is like an old person for for those kind of things you know yeah. if you sprinters and stuff like that oh no Did, sorry i was 30 my rookie year i was 32 sorry i was 32, 32 my rookie year yeah um so you said you see athletics and stuff younger and football how did you feel kind of coming into bobsled compared to, you know, American football, if you can remember when you started that or track and field? It was more closely related to track and field in terms of like everything that we we're training is just linear. Football, you have drills and different change of direction stuff and you're running routes or you're running backwards. So I would say like the track and field aspect is there and then maybe like the foot football type weight room aspect is there because you definitely don't train like a normal track and field athlete so you're still trying to be heavy and strong and do those things in the weight room but you're just adding in like you're also trying to be the best 60 meter sprinter you can be while also being 100 kilos plus Lane, what do those weight room teams look like like if there's four of you in a bobsled is it just those four people in the weight room together or is it kind of the entire squad are training together? We had a men's time and a women's time. So the women will go in and train. The women's team is a lot smaller. So they would probably have eight to 10 people in, in the weight room when they had their sessions. But the men's team, because we had multiple four-man squads, the entire men's team would be in the weight room at the same time. So we could have 15 to 20 guys in the weight room all training doing similar stuff but a little bit different depending on what people are working on and different things but yeah i would say on average we had 15 people in the gym at the same time and how much of the sessions were self-directed or was there a coach programming for everyone from the snc point of view there is a on-site coaching staff for the otc but they're not specifically there to coach you if you have something else. So I worked with Chad Wesley Smith and I worked with him throughout my entire bobsled career. So if there was ever something I was doing or if I had questions, like I had staff on site that could like watch me do movements and kind of do that like here and there right in the moment. But if you didn't have a coach and let's just say you tried out for the team and you ended up making it and then you wanted to train, then you have access to a coach. They would program for you and kind of build out whatever you wanted. So I would say half the guys were using the on-site staff and then half the guys had their own personal coach. And it's not like everyone had a different coach. Like there were guys, multiple guys using Chad. There's multiple guys using like another guy that was a former bobsledder that kind of knows like the ins and outs of what the demands of the sport are going to be. But you have the option to do either or. And did your say your guys and Chad stuff look much different to the in-house OTC programming not a lot I would say like the biggest difference would be I was very comfortable doing snatches so I had a lot of snatches in my program where a lot of other guys would not have the snatch they might have power cleans and clean poles on different days or something where I would be doing like snatch on a day and then clean on a different day so because I had the comfort of doing that movement and some guys didn't want to take the time to go through the learning curve of properly kind of putting that into their program so they would do it but i would say like most of the time everyone was doing very similar stuff like even if they weren't doing the exact same sets and reps like most people are doing the same power movements on the same days or the same strength movements on the same days and different stuff like that even though it's 
there's slight variances from person to person. Blaine, I think that brings us to a really good point of your kind of technique with the snatch and with the clean and jerk. So I think you're very well known for having outrageously high snatch and clean and jerk numbers. You have the pause snatch at 155. Uh, where did you start learning the Olympic lifts? Was it before CrossFit? Was it when you were doing football? I never snatched before I started doing CrossFit. So I, I, my first snatches ever were like in a CrossFit workout. But in football, we would use the clean. But if you've seen, it's getting better now. But like when I was playing football at university, this was been back in like 2006. The we were kind of still doing that bastardized like hang, reverse power curls and whatever you'd want to call them. We didn't ever go from the floor. Every power clean we did was from the hang in football. But once I got into CrossFit and I was. Like the whole reason I started it too is because I just wanted to learn those movements and get a little bit better at the Olympic lifts. I didn't have a coach that was teaching me, so I would go on and watch YouTube videos and try to find somebody that looks similar, like structure wise to me, that I could kind of mimic their form. And then I would just go into the gym and try to do the exact same thing. I'd film my sets and see how they compared to the person I was trying to compare to. So everything that I learned on the weightlifting side, it was I would say ninety five percent self taught. Yeah, that's it's uh it's crazy to hear somebody who's who's gotten to your level when a lot of people and definitely a lot of people on the kind of Instagram and YouTube comment sections talk about CrossFit being a, a terrible way for people to learn weightlifting or being terrible for people's form overall. And then you see at the higher end athletes like you, even athletes like Rich Froning and stuff like that who get very, very fair with their weightlifting numbers even though they started in CrossFit. Yeah. And I, it's the same thing with anything that I think is a spectrum. Like you're going to have places that probably are terrible at teaching people. And that those are the ones that get publicized the most because then it's like, Oh, look at this. They're doing everything wrong. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum where I've no CrossFit gyms and like CrossFit style gyms that have like full fledged weightlifting coaches there, like USAW certified or whatever. And like they can teach the movements well, but a lot of people don't want to take that time to go from, all right, we're just going to do like high hang muscle snatches for the first couple months until you get that movement down. And then we'll start working our way down to the floor. Everyone wants to go in and just rip the bar off the ground. So it's a spectrum with anything. And it's the same thing with, I would say, almost any sports. Like I still have, I have a lot of friends who work at high level division one and professional football programs. And I see they send me their programs and I kind of look at it and they're always like asking for tweaks and getting a little insight on stuff. And then I have other friends who are sending me stuff and the programs are vastly different, even though they're both like high level, you would consider, I'd be like one program. I'd look at it and be like, this is like, this isn't a program I would ever want to do myself. And then the other program is like, this is an amazing program. I'll probably end up doing this at some point in time in the future. So it, I think it's regardless of the sport, the Avenue or whatever, there's always going to be that spectrum of like, you're going to have bad influence and then you're going to have great influence. And then there's going to be people in the middle that kind of shift back and forth. Blaine, you mentioned uh, that some of the athletes, for example, on the bobsled team didn't want to go through the learning curve of the Olympic lifts or variations. Did you, did you see any performance difference or did you see any negative impact from their point of view from not doing the Olympic lifts? Or do you think it kind of rounded out the same? I would say it rounded out the same because they had enough stimulus throughout different things in their program or they didn't necessarily need to do the snatch. 
And I don't think there's like a direct carryover of anything you can do in the gym that's going to be like, oh, if you hit this number or this velocity on a bar, it will definitely transfer over to you being a better bobsledder by doing this. So it, they just change the focus of whatever, like if their power output is going to be a pull or maybe it might be a med ball toss or whatever it might weighted jumps or whatever it might be. They would, I didn't see anybody be like, oh, had he had been snatching, he would have been a better pusher or anything like that. Bain, can you briefly talk about what your role, so obviously there's different positions in the bobsled. What was your role in the bobsled or what was your position there? So I mainly did four-man and in a four-man sled, the guy that's in the front left is the one that drives the sled. So he hops in and he's sitting in the very front. I'm on the the rear left. So I would be what we call the two position because I go sit right behind him. So my role was basically push and run as hard as I can, jump in the sled, and then not move when I'm in the sled and just let him take control and, and do everything else. And then the other two guys, the guy behind me would be the three man. He's on the right side in the front. Uh, he basically has the same role as me, push hard, jump in, don't do anything. And the guy that's in the very back, he's actually called the brake man because he's got to stop the sled once we get past the finish line. So we all push, we all run, we all jump in the sled. And then once we get past the finish line, the guy in the back has like these two handles that'll be right between his legs and he just got a crank on them. And that shoots down like these little teeth into the ice and it just drags across the ice until you kind of slow down. And Blaine, when you're, so after you've done your kind of max effort pushing at the start, when you're in the sled, is it literally just a thing of holding on? Because you've seen, everyone's seen the the kind of videos of sleds turning over, these crazy corners. What's, yeah. what's going on when you're actually sitting in the tube? So you want to try to be as still as possible. Because any ship, think about it, if you got three guys in the back, each of them weighs 100 kilos. If you got any type of like shift, that's a 300 kilo shift. And that could make the sled kind of skirt off to the side or maybe it's just so and the driver will feel that. But in a in a race, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of a second. So that little shift can cost you 100 seconds. And it's it's not like we're just sitting there and relaxing like we need to know what the track is. So every track is same thing with like F1. They know how, exactly what turn is next and what turn comes after that. And they know exactly what's going on. We need to know the same thing. So the first turn is a right. The second turn is a right. Then it's a left Then whatever it is. So you can kind of anticipate, okay, I'm going to turn left. So I need to hold a little harder, maybe on my right side. So I can kind of lean with that and not shift around as I come and go. But it's a usually a single run lasts about a minute. And it's like a one minute max ISO of just fighting against this sled, wanting you to shift around back and forth. How did you find the kind of game day mentality on bobsled versus maybe a CrossFit competition or maybe even the weightlifting competitions? The start house at a bobsled race on race day is one of the most intense atmospheres I've ever been in because you've got multiple guys from every country you've got like there's small little locker rooms so it's not like we have our own separate locker room and it's uh, it's like us and everybody canada's there germany switzerland austria we're all sitting in there and everyone has the same goal like they want to go and rip this 200 kilo sled off the ice and push as hard as they can and it's just a room full of units like everyone is like 
100 kilos up to 110 kilos and everyone is in there like caffeinated out pre-workouts getting ready like ammonia salts everything just getting ready to just try to rip this sled off the ice for five seconds and race days are into like that atmosphere even with being in a like football locker rooms definitely not in crossfit crossfit's kind of chill regardless like you know, there might be a little bit of tension before an event but for the most part like people aren't in the back like rocking back and forth kind of frothing at the mouth ready to just go and tear something apart and bobsled every single week every single race is like that because like like i said it's it's hundreds of a second and if you could get that hundredth of a second at the start then that could set you up for a even bigger lead at the finish so the guys that are in those star houses and everybody is just like ready to kill anybody on the drop of a pin so like during the week when we do our training it's kind of chill like we talk to each other where I had friends on different teams from different countries and we could shoot the shit and say whatever. And, but on race day, it's like, you don't talk to anybody. You're, you're focused on your own thing. People that you might be joking around with during the week, you might walk past each other in a start house. You just look at each other. You're not going to say anything to them. You're just like, today's a different day. <laughs> did, did you enjoy that atmosphere? I did. It was a lot of fun because you had your team with you. So like I had a group of guys that we were all going to be on the same sled. We'd warm up together and get ready to go. And like, it still has that team aspect of it where it's not just a solo thing. So I really enjoyed that type of atmosphere. I thought race days were a lot of fun. Blaine, what's the OTC lifestyle like in the US when particularly for the bobsledders? Are you living on campus? Are you spending kind of 24 hours or 23 hours a day on campus? What's it look like? We lived on campus. So the the site that I lived at was up in Lake Placid, which is like upstate New York. And we had our dorm rooms, we had a cafeteria, we had the indoor weight room, um, basketball court with an indoor track there. We had the push track. So everything we needed was on site at that facility. Like if you didn't want to, you could never leave the facility and you could just train, eat, sleep, do whatever you want. And then we also have an offsite ice house, which is going to be very similar to what we would do on like race days that uh, pushing. So like throughout the week, let's say like a normal training day, usually everyone would get up, meet in the cafeteria. We'd have breakfast. First session is going to be either sprinting or pushing um, or sometimes a combination of both. So that would probably be about 60 to 90 minutes where you're just doing reps and kind of getting your speed work done and working on some things when it comes to pushing a sled. And then you have probably a four-hour break from the time that that session ends until we get into the weight room where guys would go into town, hang out. They could stay at the place, have food, like whatever they do, just kind of kill time for a few hours. And then we'd get back in the weight room. We would try to, even if we're not doing the same stuff in the weight room, like we would make it a point where everyone is going to train at 2 o'clock or at 3 o'clock and we're all going to be in there at the same time. Um, which was a really cool thing because it just helped. Like when you train with a group of guys, especially at that level, those training sessions are just that much more fun. You got the music bumping. Some dudes are maxing out or some guys aren't. It's just, it's a great atmosphere. And then once the session was over, you just have the rest of the day to kind of chill and do whatever you want. So we have a recovery center there too. So we had like on-site medical staff. So hot tubs, cold tubs, massages, any type of therapy that you might need, saunas, all that kind of stuff was on site. So usually people would take advantage of that after their second session or on rest days. And that would 
be basically every day in and out except for like rest days we would just go into town grab coffees hang out do whatever there's also a lake there so we could go down to the lake and just hang out and so it's it's a small town but it it was a lot of fun staying there did you avail of any of the recovery modalities on a regular basis anything in particular stand out to you um it depended on where we are at in the off season so early off season i don't like to do any of the recovery stuff i kind of my thought process of it is I don't want to speed up my body's recovery adaptation to my training any more than I want, than I need to. So early off season, I would just train and my recovery would just be sleep, eat, hang out, let the body kind of rest and relax. And then as I got closer to like any type of, if we were doing some sort of testing or some sort of competition, then for like the month prior to that, I would start adding in some like contrast bath with the cold tub and the hot tub, or I might do sauna sessions on my rest days, get a massage, something like that, just to try to like speed up that recovery process so I can be better for whatever competition or testing event that we might have going on. But I would say mostly would use the sauna, do some contrast bath, and then every once in a while, if I felt like I needed it, I would get a massage. And Blaine, what did that kind of yearly plan look like? How often are you in off-season? How often are you in-season or peaking throughout the year? So off-season starts pretty much in May. So our, the, the season usually ends in February. Everyone takes, you know, a month or so to just like, maybe they're training a little bit, but nobody's doing anything like intense. And then once like April, May comes around, then you start getting back into like introducing your speed work again, doing some more like specific stuff in the weight room, even though it's still very general. And then our first test throughout the year is usually end of August. So you'd have a good three months to kind of build up for push champs is what we called it. So you do individual push champs where you would just push the sled by yourself from a couple different positions. They would get some times on you and then be like, okay, this person's here, this person's there. And then based on what you did individually, they would pair you up with some people and you would do combo push champs where then you'd have a group of three guys on the sled pushing together. So then they're trying to figure out, all right, what are the teams going to look like this year? And then based off those performances, you would go into like making the team. So they would do selections based off of that. Um, So that would be August. And then from August until October is kind of like your second preseason where we're not pushing, we're not doing anything. They've named the team, so we know who our crews are. So now most of our speed and push training is going to be with your crew, doing more combo stuff, working on timing and loads and everything. And then your weight room stuff, you're kind of peaking towards October, which is when the beginning of the season is going to start. And then in season is going to be end of October through February, March, depending on the exact season. And your in-season stuff, you're just trying to have like l- as little of a drop as possible with kind of mini peaks on certain race days where you're going to be able to go out and kind of perform. So most people didn't race every single week. So let's say I knew I was going to have a week off. I might train a little bit harder that week to prepare myself for the following week or vice versa or whatever it might be. And you kind of just like your normal in-season type stuff where you've got like planned events where you're going to peak, peak, and then when world champs would show up, that's when you want your best performance to be, and that would be like your final peak for the season. 
I'm playing, are these all international level competitions if you're doing kind of two every month or what's the kind of level of competition it prior is to Worlds? Okay. Once, this, once the season starts, everything's an international competition. So you you compete once a week and then we would get about a 10-day to two-week break during Christmas and New Year's and then you would start again middle of January and have your, your last probably four races. So there's about 10 races in a season. You'd get about five or six prior to the Christmas break and then you get about four to five after the Christmas break and you're, but like I said, you're racing every single week and you'll race in Germany and then maybe you got to race in Austria and then we got to go to Switzerland. And so everyone goes on the same circuit. It's, they're all international races and some of them are in North America and they just kind of go back and forth. Nice. Blaine, how did the kind of Bob said lifestyle end? What kind of catalyzed that? So Olympic year 2022, we ended up trying to qualify three sleds so it's the same thing with like i I believe in like weightlifting a a country can only send three lifters for the men and or like for the women they can't just send everyone that's good so in bob said it's the same thing except for they only allow three countries to send three sleds and we believe that we had a good enough opportunity to send those three sleds so that was our whole goal for that season and we made certain decisions to kind of put crews together to try to make that happen as best as possible. The crew that I was on ended up not being able to have the best season in order to get enough points to qualify, even though at the end of the season, I think we were still ranked 14th in the world and the top 30 get to go. But us being at 14th was just just enough outside of that third sled qualification where there were three other countries that had three sleds in the top 13. So we didn't quite get that third spot. So my season ended once the regular season was over. Everyone went off to the Olympics. I had only planned on doing four years anyways, and that was my fourth year. So I had just been like, the goal was to try to make it to the Olympics. It didn't happen, but the plan was to always retire after that year was over. Maybe a bit of a a harsh question, but given that bobsled is such a a team sport, how did you feel when your team didn't qualify, you know, because you, now you're doing an individual sport, CrossFit would have been, you know, I know you did some team competitions in CrossFit. So how did you find dealing with the not qualifying for the Olympics as part of a team environment? Does that impact any of the kind of feelings, do you think? No, not so much, because we always like we knew it was a big risk to make those decisions to try to get three sleds that year anyways. And we were all OK with making that decision. And for us, we kind of knew right about the halfway point where we were at points-wise and how many races were left and what tracks were left and what we could project we would finish at. And we already kind of knew that the that third sled was going to be out of the question. So it sucked not being able to qualify the third sled. And it's not like it was like, oh, do or die, this is the last race if we don't do it. So I think the emotions were a little bit different. It was easier to kind of swallow it because we realized, all right, we're already out of it, but we still have four races to go, so let's just try to end as well as we can versus, all right, it's the last race of the season. It's do or die. We have to do it all. So I think it would have been a much different feeling on that. But we all knew the risk going into it. It was it was a risky move to do because we could have easily – like my sled specifically – we were the USA two team. 
we could have easily went on to a different circuit and qualified and made it to the Olympics. But we chose to go onto the World Cup circuit to try to allow number three on the North American circuit to get their points and be able to qualify. So we didn't perform on the World Cup the way that we should have. They did perform on the North American Cup the way that they should have. So they ended up qualifying. So even though we were the second ranked team in the U.S., we still weren't able to go because that sled specifically didn't have the points to qualify. But yeah, it sucked. But it's kind of like at that level, I think you have to have the mindset of like you need to be prepared that things aren't going to go your way. And if they do, yeah, sure. Take that. Learn from it. But you can't just you know, go pout and sit in the corner because the gold <laughs> didn't happen. So Blaine, when that happens and when you kind of transition out of bobsled, is it a thing of the next week you move out and you just go back to training in a CrossFit gym? Or is it a kind of thing of taking a few months off and then realizing I want to go back to training? Or how did that transition come about? I, I, I went home as soon as like the season was over i got all my stuff from the training center and just flew back to iceland and there was a period of time for probably three to four months where i was just training not doing anything specific and i didn't have anything like specifically in mind that i wanted to compete in or do anything like that and chad hit me up just randomly and just asked like hey is there anything in mind that you want to do or have you thought about like what the next step is and we had talked about this while I was bobsledding because when I was bobsledding, I was hitting decent numbers in the snatch and clean where I was like, well, maybe when I'm done with bobsled, we'll do some weightlifting meets. So that was in his mind. And he actually reached back out to me. He's like, so do you want to go to do weightlifting now? You've had a few months off. How do you feel? I was like, yeah, let's do that. So the first one that I did was uh, Icelandic national championships and ended up winning that for my weight class. And I have another meet planned at the end of September, which is here in Iceland again. So that's like the next thing. And then I don't know if I'll continue to do meets after that or whatnot, but I'm having fun training this style and trying to finally putting numbers onto the platform was, was cool to do and like go through the experience of doing a meet. So you, you're, your numbers seem to be basically accelerating. You know, you seem to be improving a lot. You've got the 150 power snatch recently. And if you were to use that as a predictor in weightlifting, normally you'd say that's probably close to a 170. You could be lucky between like 167, 172 of a, a maximum snatch on the floor if you're like maximally technically efficient and a few other things, you know, and you you jerked 200 kilos from the rack recently. Um, like, how do you feel that weightlifting progress is going now that you finally have a chance to just put the shoe down for weightlifting? Yeah, it's definitely accelerated. I I kind of anticipated this to happen too because when I was doing bobsled, like I could still snatch 150, clean 200, and but I had so much other stuff that I was doing outside of just the weight room stuff that I'd always thought in the back of my mind is like, man, if I'd really like put my foot down and just did weightlifting, those numbers would probably be a lot higher than what they are right now. So I anticipated that to happen when we started doing this. So I went from a 150 snatch to a 160 snatch in six months, roughly, give or take. And then, yeah, like my jerk, 200, cleans, 200. I haven't put those two together. Like I'm at 195 last time I tested my clean and jerk. 
So I do think a 170 is possible, and that's kind of the, the number I have in my mind for the meet in September. But I, doing this now, I'm 37 years old. I'm thinking like if I had started this even when I was like 25, it's like 170, 200 would probably be an easy number to go. I'd probably be thinking about 175, 180, and maybe 210, 220, or whatever it might be on that end. So it, there's always going to be a little bit like there – there was a missed opportunity there, like had I done it earlier in my life, but I, I'm having fun and I, I really enjoy the process of kind of building this up. Even though I'd say my training is like 80% what a weightlifter would do and then 20% of like the stuff that I still like to do. So all the sprinting and plyometrics, like I still do some of that, but I don't do enough of it where it's kind of taking away from what the goal is of the, like building up the snatch and the clean and jerk T- to be honest Blaine I'd be very surprised if you couldn't do 172.10 in the next uh, two years or 18 months I'd be super surprised if you if you couldn't do those numbers if you kept training the way you're training yeah 170 if I I've what was it a couple of weeks ago I attempted a 165 and threw it over my head and as soon as I threw that over, it was like, all right, I know 170 is going to be there eventually. Make me, It's not probably going to be there in September, but that is in the back of my head where it's like, all right, maybe during nationals next year in Iceland, which would be like March or April, I think. Like I think a 170 is easily probably going to be attainable. And then 200 plus I think is going to be attainable if I stick with it. So I think depending on how the meet goes and just – I don't have any plans to do anything else in the future and I'm having a lot of fun doing this. So I think what's going to happen is the meet will happen. Even though 170 is a cool number and that's what I want to get, I'll probably be in the one sixties and that's going to be enough for me to be like, shit, I need to get go 170 and and then I'll just stick with it and keep building up until that happens. And then the clean and jerk for me, like the jerk is going to be the limiter. Like I could probably clean, you know, 195, 200, almost any time that I need to, if I were to max out, it's going to be whether or not that jerks there. Cause I spent so many years just doing cleans. I never did jerks when I was doing bobsled. So I'm trying to kind of like let that jerk catch back up to where the clean is. So Blaine, one thing you mentioned earlier was the the kind of stuff you like doing, the plyometrics, the jumps. Um, it seems as though from watching your training, from watching the, the Instagram videos you put up, you tend to put those as like almost as a primer at the start of your weightlifting sessions. Is yeah. that, is that just a factor of Instagram editing where you're actually doing those in a separate session earlier on? Or do you actually use them as a direct primer for your weightlifting movements before a oh, session? Yeah, 100%. I use it as a primer before the session just because like, it's the most explosive thing I'm going to be doing. So I like to do that first. And then I also like to use that as kind of a gauge on where I kind of feel that I'm at. So I don't have like specific percentages that I need to be at on a certain day. I kind of have like a range of like, I need to be in this area where I'm going to be. So like, let's say I'm doing like on Monday, I had snatch doubles and it was between 135 and 145. So I'm using my jumps and it's like, if I feel like I'm snapping off the ground and things are just flying, it's like, I know I'm going to be closer to that 145 number for my lifts. And if I feel like the jumps are just heavier than they should feel, then I might be down closer to that 135 number. And this is a good, I've always done this to kind of gauge how that training session is going to be. And we used to do this at the training center where we would actually have like force plates though. So we would get on the force plate, 
do a vertical jump, we would get a very specific number of like, this is where you're at. And we can kind of gauge your training off of that versus I don't have force plates here. And it's just an easy way to kind of just feel it out. Like I've done enough plyometrics and different variations and all this kind of stuff where I know how things should feel. And I know when things are on point or when things feel a little off. So I definitely use that to kind of prime the session, kind of use it as like an additional warm up, and then use it to kind of gauge like, all right, this is how things are feeling. So I need to set my expectations that things might be off today or set my expectations of if things are good, then we're going to cook and we're going to try to get us that, that higher end of whatever rep range that I'm supposed to be at for the day. Do you, how do you decide what variation of plyometrics you do? Because you uh, do more plyometric variations than I've seen anyone else doing, I think, in training. Yeah, I kind of just like I'll have my training block and I'll pick out two to three types of jumps because I usually will do some sort of jump three times a week because that's usually my like my weightlifting program right now is I've got some variation of snatch and clean and jerk on Monday, some variation of snatch and clean and jerk on Wednesday, and then some variation of snatch and clean and jerk on Friday. So I'll have three variations of like whatever jump I want to do. And I don't really have a specific way to kind of pick like what's going to transfer over to weightlifting the best. I just kind of use like if it's an early block and I'm not getting super like I'm still 12, 16 weeks out from when a competition is, then I'm just choosing any type of jump that I want to do. And I'll use that for four weeks and then switch it up and use the same thing for four weeks. That way I can kind of get the same feel week after week and see how things are going. As I get closer to uh, a meet or a competition, what I like to do is add in some sort of like depth jump variation because those are going to be the most intense. And the depth jump specifically is the one thing that I do feel transfers over into like weightlifting a lot, specifically the jerk. As I've noticed like the times that I've hit my biggest depth jumps and I'll, you always use the same height boxes and I can just kind of feel how I spring off of those are also the times I've seen huge improvements specifically like in the jerk. So like the better jumper I've become, usually the better jerk that I can kind of feel off of that. So I'll use it in that sense. But yeah, I have no specific variations of like, oh, this jump transfers over to the snatch the best or this jump transfers over to the clean i just go all right i'm going to do some sort of counter movement jump i'm going to do some sort of single leg variation and then i'm going to do some sort of seated jump so i'll have one from a static position using both legs a single leg jump and then some sort of like a counter movement preload type jump and that's usually the outline that i use and i'll just kind of throw those in and change them up every four to six weeks as i as i feel i need to lane where did you did you figure out that depth jump thing anywhere or did you figure that out by yourself? I figured it out by myself. You know, so, you know, what's really interesting about that is so in the eighties, uh, the Russians correlated the depth jump and increasing total. Uh, so do you call it like the shock method? So Medivh, uh, when it came to peaking for competition, so they'd add the depth jump in at select times throughout the year and they'd see like meaningful increases in weightlifters totals, like elite level weightlifters by like five, 10 kilos. Uh, I think that the jerk was correlated with 20% of the body weight on a barbell jump. Uh, but that's very, very interesting that you found the exact same thing uh, as them, which is very, very interesting and in how how useful depth jumps can be when you're jumping. That's mm -hmm. crazy. 
Yeah. So when I started CrossFit in 2014, I, that's also like when I started doing the majority of the clean, like of my Olympic lifting. And I'd always used depth jumps. And I've something I started learning early is like whenever I would do jumps, depth jump, there'd be like a three week period where everything just felt easier. All my weights were flying. The jerk was easier. The clean was easier. Squatting felt easier. But then there'd be like a week or two period after where everything felt extremely hard. Like 80% felt like 100%. Mm. And then I started like it started clicking where I was like, all right, I need to put that in certain places to where when I want to hit big numbers, it's there because I always feel like garbage two weeks after it happens. So it was kind of trial and error. And then, yes, I have read that study at uh, Verkoshansky's shock method book. They specifically said, I don't remember the exact like volumes, but they would do like within a, a tire peaking block, they would do upwards of like 200 repetitions of a depth jump and they would see 10 kilo. I think one person even did like a 20 kilo increase on their total just by adding those in for three weeks. And that's when I read that, I was like, oh man, I accidentally did this and <laughs> kind of stumbled across it. Cause I'd, I mean, I've been doing, we did depth jumps when I was playing football. Like I'd always, I love doing that variation the most, but I'm very aware that like I can only do it for a couple weeks before things start to feel like trash. And then I see a decrease in performance. So I actually just started doing depth jump, like a really easy depth jump variation now to kind of get ready because I know I've got a month and a half. So in about three weeks, I'll start adding in those specific depth jumps for the meet that I have coming up. But yeah, it was kind of like stumbled across on it just based off how things were feeling. And then once I read that, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And that kind of validified my own theory on what things were working with. So Blaine, with that kind of three day split you have at the moment, the Monday, Wednesday and Friday of weightlifting, with your plyometrics, with your kind of sprinting and stuff like that. What do the other days of the week look like? Are you recovering? Are you just working as normal? Do you do some conditioning? No conditioning. Um, the, in well, preparation... sprints, sprints for weightlifting is a huge amount of conditioning. And 300 jumps over the course of a month is a to lot be honest, of conditioning. Any sort of movement for weightlifting is, is huge, <laughs> yeah. huge conditioning. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't do my, like what people consider like traditional conditioning. I'm not going to do zone two work. I'm not going to go for long walks or do anything like that. The sprinting is going to be a form of conditioning. Cause even if you're doing, you know, a 30 meter sprints, or if you have a sled and you're doing a 20 meter sprint, like that one rep may take three times as long as the snatch is going to take. And then you've got shorter rest periods and you can repeat that over and over. So it could be looked at as like specific conditioning in terms of, like what energy system you're trying to use and improve um, prior to like this 12 week. No, I, I started a 13 week block to get ready for this meet in September. Prior to that, I had actually done like a six week, I guess you could call it like GPP where it was lower volume, like low, not lower volume, lower intensities on all the weights, but everything was basically on, on the minute. So it was, you're doing triples on snatch on the minute you're doing double clean and jerks on the minute you're doing sets of five on the back squat or front squat on the minute. And every single session was like that. So that was like a conditioning block, not like your traditional, just sit on a bike or go for a walk type stuff. Um, the other days. So like Monday, for example, 
I usually will do some sort of short acceleration. So whether it's with the sled or without a sled, and then I'll go into snatches, clean and jerk and front squats. And those are the only things I'll do in the weight room on Tuesday. I'm still training. That's where I'll do more of like what people would consider like the assistant work. So all your accessory work will be on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, I have some variation of, again, snatch and clean and jerk with the plyos. And then I just do back squats. Thursdays, I don't do anything. Fridays, snatch, clean and jerk again with just front squats. And then Saturdays, I do the rest of my accessory work. So I have like two days of accessory work, three days of the traditional lifts with squats, and then two days a week where it's just recovery days. Blaine, so you're remarkably mobile for a 100 kilo athlete who's probably like, 10% 10% body fat, 11% body fat. Do you, do you do a lot of mobility or static stretching or is it just something that stays with you? No. So when I was 14 years old, I had gotten a hold of the, we used to have these magazines or my weight room uh, class in high school would get these deliveries of these magazines called Bigger, Faster, Stronger. And I don't know if they're around anymore, but our uh, head, football head coach was also the weight room coach and I would read these magazines just sit in his office and I remember specifically reading a, a article about full range squats and how they transfer over to performance and sport and it would show a picture of I mean this is going to date how old I am but it would show a picture of like Ricky Henderson stealing second base and the angle that he's getting off when he's pushing and like how he's actually hitting a deep hip range of motion as he's trying to sprint and when I was younger, the only thing I cared about was running fast and jumping high. And after reading that article, that stuck in my head. It's like, I need to do everything through as full a range of motion as I possibly can at all times. So every, even when I was 15 years old, I'm like trying to do ass to grass squats. I'm trying to go through as big a range of motion as I can through each of my movements. And I think that's what has set me up to like remain relatively mobile because I don't do any stretching. And there hasn't really been a period of time where it was like, mobility was ever an issue for me or a focus on what I was trying to do. I've always just thought like, if I'm going to do squats or presses or whatever it might be, like, I'm just going to go through the end ranges at all times and doing it under load. There's a lot of studies that can kind of back this up is if you try to lift through that range of motion under load, you actually gain more mobility and ranges than you would if you're just holding static stretches in those same or similar positions. So, I mean, I've been doing it since I was 15 years old and that's the way I've lifted forever and it's just stuck with me and I think that's where all that comes from. I think a lot of the plyometric makes a big difference as well. Uh, A lot of the the fascia seems to respond to uh, high-speed movements, you know, and uh, that's some of the... Depends on what way you want to look at it, some of the chiropractic research that comes out and why it might be in favor of it and there's a lot more to that, but um, it's very interesting that uh, you don't do any mobility or any traditional mobility currently. Yeah. Yeah. I've read about the plows and like ability to build resiliency and the tendons and the elasticity can aid in mobility and strengthen your end ranges and the fascia. So there's a lot to it as well. Blaine, I think one thing people really look at when they look at you today, to see these phenomenal performance metrics they see all these different sports. They see you still progressing, even in your kind of later 30s, which people would traditionally consider like your your later sports career. Um, yeah. If you're even still going, 
but you're in phenomenal shape. And I think a lot of the time people have a real issue if they're involved in strength sports or power sports, they have a real issue maintaining that really good body comp with the performance outcomes. They tend to, to kind of swap one for the other. They'll do three months of getting in better shape, then six months of just focusing on their sport. Do you have general advice around that for people? I like general advice would be like figure out what the goal is and don't worry about the aesthetics that go along with the goal. Like if you're stronger and you feel like you're a little bit thicker, then if the goal is to be strong, then go with whatever is going to make you as strong as possible. If your goal is to look a certain way, then realize that there could be performance aspects that means that if you're going to be leaner, you're probably not going to feel as strong as you would be if you had a little bit extra mass on you. For me, like personally, I don't like to associate the way that I look with performances because I have that mindset of like, I'm looking for something specific. And if it means that I need to look a little bit thicker around the waist in order to snatch 170, as long as I'm still within my weight classes, then that doesn't matter to me. But I've also always been a very, very lean individual. Like there's pictures of me when I'm 12, 13, and it's just like shredded and I'd never even trained. And then there are pictures of me like 19 years old. I'm still just like as lean as possible. The heaviest I've ever been was 230. And like I would... I don't think I had much more mass on me. I I think I was just carrying a little bit extra body fat, but even at 230, like I still had visible abs and like, it's just, that's just genetics. Like there's nothing I'm doing specifically to try to look a certain way. It's just, if I stopped training right now, like let's say I weigh somewhere between 98 to hundred kilos. If I were to stop training, I would just shrink in size and look the exact same. Like I would still maintain the amount of leanness that I have. I would just be like 90 kilos. It's actually extremely hard for me to keep this type of weight on. My body naturally wants to be around like probably 94 kilos or so. But with the amount of training that I do and the amount of eating, like I can maintain that. Like when I was in bobsled, the coaches had actually asked me if I I could bump up to 102 and I was eating everything in sight and the heaviest I could get was 101. Like I could not get to 102. It just would not happen. And it, it was got to the point where like I would just sit at the cafeteria at dinner and just this plate of food that's still not eaten as I can't eat anymore. There's nothing more that I could put in here that's not going to just make me throw up. And then I would go stand on the scale. It's like 100.8. And it's like, I can't get to 102. It's not going to happen. Blaine, I can relate to nothing less than the last, <laughs> the last two minutes of what you just said there mean nothing to me. Um, I was accidentally 109 two weeks ago and now I'm back to 106. Um what does the nutrition look like in terms of like f- food specifics or generalities? Are you, are you vegan, carnivore? Are you just somewhere in the middle? Is there anything you do in particular? No. Um, well, okay. Not vegan, not carnivore. There is particular. I generally follow uh, Efforting's vertical diet. Oh, nice. And nice. the reason is when I got done with college, I moved back home. One of the first gyms that I got a job at was an LA fitness that Stan was still training at. So I got to watch Stan train every single day from two to four before like the afternoon rush would come in and just watch him crush weights all the time. And I was the 
director of personal training. So like my job was to make sure the trainers were doing their jobs and get new clients and do all this kind of stuff. But during that specific time is a really slow time of day. So a lot of times I would just watch Stan when he was, he's extremely nice too. Like before training, if I had any questions or like he would just come over and say, hi, we'd start talking about training. And this was when he was kind of developing the vertical diet to become like a product. So I would pick his brain about like, what are you doing to eat? And because at the, at this time he was trying to be a power lifter and a bodybuilder at the same time. So he's trying to be as big and strong, but also lean to be ready for the stage. This is when he was going for like his world record total and for his IFBB pro card and his like talking about like the red meat and the rice and keeping things simple and just trying to get as clean as sources of food that you can and just going through all that, that stuck with me. And then he gave me a, 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 his addition of the vertical diet when he first got it. And he's like, I think you'd be interested in this. And I read it through. And ever since then, it was just like, that's been such an easy way for me to eat. And it's, I'm not the type of person where every single one of my meals has to be the best tasting meal ever. Like I can just eat meat and rice five times a day and be totally happy. So I follow, I would say 90% of the time I have some variation of vertical diet that I follow. And then I have those 10% times where it's just like, I just want a burger or pizza or like two pizzas or whatever it might be. But yeah, I would say for the most part, it's, it's going to be that vertical esque type of diet that I follow. Two pizzas are crazy. Blinks. Mental. <laughs> what's, um, what's food quality like in Iceland? Is it much different to the U S is it? Oh, is it gonna... it's incredible out here compared to the U S it is night and day. Like the U S is, Every time I go back to visit, I'm just that much more happier that I don't live there full time. <laughs> like, I go back there and it's just, you go to the grocery store and you read food labels and it's like, Jesus, like the stuff that's in this is, this is supposed to be ground beef and there's ingredients in this. Like, it should just say it's ground beef, but it yeah. doesn't because there's so much extra stuff in it. But the food laws, like in throughout most of Europe, and you guys probably have better food, quality food as well. That like you're not allowed to have certain preservatives. You're not allowed to have certain ingredients. Some stuff is elite, like literally illegal to sell in Iceland just because it has an ingredient, even though it's on the shelves in the U.S. So the food quality is great. I have got a local butcher that I go to, and I just walk in there, load up with a bunch of beef. But literally, just in the back room, they just butchered the cow and ground it up, and now it's in a package in the front. And then the eggs that I get at the grocery store here are all sourced from Iceland somewhere. Most of the meat and dairy and everything is sourced within Iceland. And then like the, so like the quality and the freshness of everything is just, I mean, night and day compared to the U.S. No, that's, it sounds great. It sounds a lot like Ireland, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're oftentimes shocked when we go abroad. Uh, you start looking at meat, especially the price of some of the meat in the shop is a, uh, is crazy yeah Blaine when you moved to Iceland like I, I've been there a few times uh, it's an absolutely amazing country was there any big culture shock was there anything where you're like oh I'm not in Kansas anymore or in your case California anymore <laughs> there was I am like people in Iceland are a little bit more reserved especially in the town that I'm in so like Reykjavik is the capital that's where you know 300,000 people live and then the town that I am in is the second largest town in Iceland. And there's only 18,000 people here. So there's like, it's a, it's almost like you're entering a small tribe where 
they know I'm a foreigner, even though I live here. So there was kind of like people were reserved and not open. It was just kind of like, who's this guy that's now living here? But once you get to know people, like I've traveled enough to, or it's all you have to do is just start going and talking to people and they kind of like, oh, okay, he's a normal person. He's not anything crazy. Same thing as like traveling to any other country throughout Europe is people just are more culture shocked that it's just like, oh, you're not from here. And then you find something to talk about and they're just like, oh, okay, he's a normal, regular person. But there was a short period of time where it was like, I did feel like I went from living in a place that had a million plus in one city to living in a place that was 18,000. It was just like, I feel like I'm just always at home, even though I'm not at home because it's just such a small atmosphere and just such a small place. And Blaine, now are you, so you obviously like have online training programs, you've some coaching online. Is everything you do remote or do you have a, a facility where you coach people in person as well? 99% of everything I do is on is online. I do coach some strength classes and do some stuff here. Um, but I don't like, that's not close to being like a full-time gig. Most of my stuff is going to be with the the unit programs or individual online clients. I actually have a lot of bobsledders that I coach as well because it's one of those sports that you had to have experienced in order to kind of really understand how to train for it, even though it's like, okay, you need to be big and fast and explosive, but it's also like I know what pushing a sled is going to do intensity-wise on a body, and I know how to train around that, and when you're traveling – I know what facilities you have access to. A lot of times you just have a squat rack in a garage and that's all you have access to. And so it's a lot of my clients come from the bobsled world, but the, the unit programs is a, is a cool way for me to kind of take my methods of training and things that I've learned throughout the course of my athletic career and kind of put it into a program where people can kind of jump on because people watch my Instagram stuff and they're like, where can I do this kind of stuff? And for the longest time, I was just like, I didn't have anything out because I was still so focused on competing and, and being an athlete to where just recently in the past years when I started launching all this stuff to where people actually have some variation to do like sprints and plyos and weightlifting and, and different strength stuff all in one program. So it's been fun to kind of transition away from like, hardcore athlete into like now I'm like a part-time athlete that has the online aspect of things. Blaine, I think that the kind of hybrid athlete or the idea of the hybrid athlete has, has kind of exploded in the last three or four years. And it's funny, a lot of people who now class themselves as, as hybrid athletes or are fans of it don't necessarily like CrossFit so much, even though that's the kind of, uh, antif or that's where a lot of those athletes started. Um, I think you've, a brand of hybrid athlete that we don't really see too often where you're extremely explosive. You're basically mixing sprinting plyos, track work with weightlifting and some strength work um, rather than the, the traditional style of bodybuilding plus running or powerlifting yeah. plus running. Is there any kind of specific challenges you see with, with your model of the hybrid athlete where it is so explosive and it is so kind of power uh, based yeah when you get into like i'm making a program for something let's say i'm gonna build a 12-week program and just put it online for people to buy i have to be aware of like how much volume and intensity like 
somebody is going to be able to handle. And I have to think about this in a single session. So even though I may sprint and lift, I could do that in two sessions because I have the time of day to do like my sprint session in the morning and then my weightlifting in the afternoon. So I kind of look at like how those volumes and intensities go. But even in terms of like always being power and explosive, I like to keep aspects of like that force velocity curve throughout each of the programs, but have different focuses. So if I do have a strength program, you're still going to do some variation of sprinting and jumping, but it's probably just going to be like little touches here and there, even though the strength work is going to be the focus. And then I have another program that's more explosive and power based where those strength numbers are going to come down. We're going to be at lower percentages. We're going to move things faster and we might add a little bit more on the jumping or the sprint side of stuff. But the, the biggest challenge is trying to think about trying to give everybody what they're going to want, but then in a way where they're going to see progress still and not just feel like they've just been burnt out and died. And that took me a long time to kind of pick and choose and kind of choose out what works and what doesn't together. But I've got a really good handle on that now to where I've got good things like I've always you like let's say I've had you know 100 individual clients use a very similar squat progression and they've all gotten progress on this one squat progression I'm probably going to take that and put it into a program I'm just going to go on and sell because I know that squat progression works and then you just kind of go okay that squat progression is going to be the focus what could I do before that that's not going to take away from the focus so maybe we only do five total sprints and they're only going to be 10 meters, but we're still touching that where they're not going to be burnt out. But it's also like doing the jumps right now before I do my weightlifting. Maybe that sprint is just going to be the primer before their their strength session that day. So you kind of play around with things, learn what works, learn what doesn't, trial and error along with everything else. And eventually you'll find a mold that kind of works and then you just put it out there and people enjoy it. Lane, I think uh, probably the last things I'd like to touch on is the fact that uh, you're a father and a very high-level athlete, you know, and uh, I'm uh, my son is nearly one. And I remember before, while my missus was pregnant and stuff, people were like, oh, when are you going to train? What are you going to do about training? They're like, you won't be able to train as much anymore. And uh, I remember one of my good friends said to me, it'd be like, it'd be very cool to, to squat a big PB while you have a young child just to show people it's not uh, it's not a thing you know how did you how did you find that having uh, a kid uh, a daughter i believe while still training the cool thing that i've learned like my daughter is three she turns four in <laughs> october there would be times where it's like i want to get a training session in but i have my daughter so i started just bringing her with me and now she loves to go to the gym with me and she loves to watch whatever it is that I'm doing. And then she'll grab like a stick and try to mimic whatever I'm doing that day. It's hilarious because she was there the day that I did my 160 snatch. Nice. So I, oh, that's I, I snatched 160, and I like slammed the bar down. I'm all hyped. And five minutes later, she gets this uh, broomstick and she's like, she's like, Daddy, look at me. And she picks it up over her head and she just like screams and slams it on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most hilarious thing, but it was also awesome because like she's learned to love going to the gym and doing that. But there was a period of time where it's like, all right, I'm only going to have a 45 minute window to train or maybe a 30 minute window to train. So I'm just going to go get like I'm going to do the one thing that I want to get done, whether it's I'm going to go sprint today and just do 
30 minutes of sprint or I'm going to go squat today and do 30 minutes of squats and get something done in order to get back and go do family life and everything. But it's cool that I've exposed her enough to it to where she likes to go there. And she likes, like if I'm going to the track, she wants to go to the track and she wants to run and copy whatever I'm doing. And then I've always got like the laptop or something ready in case she gets to the point where she's like, it's like sometimes she'll just be like, I'm tired. I'm, d- I'm done training for the today. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I'll, I'll just set the laptop up. She'll watch something for 30 minutes. I'll finish my session and then we'll be done. Do you, uh, this might be a bit heavy for an athlete podcast, but it's something I always think about, you know, is the, uh, I think in 2023, the idea of having a child is, is almost seen as a negative. You know, people are, like you can't do the things you want to do anymore or you won't be able to do them as much or you don't have as much free time. Is that anything that you, you've ever thought about or is it something you've ever kind of experienced when, uh, say, during the pregnancy period or anything like that? Because I remember all I heard, except for one person in a changing room in a jiu-jitsu gym, was basically either negative or like skewing towards the negative. They're like, enjoy it while it lasts or, you know, wait till you've no more sleep or whatever. How did you, how do you find being a father currently? I mean, currently, so when my ex was pregnant, I was still bobsledding. So I had a little bit different of a situation is like my main focus was still training and I was able to kind of do that. Plus I lived at the training center. So I was gone for a few months and I would go back and forth. But when I do have my daughter, like my priority is going to be her. So I'm always going to ask her, like, if I want to train that day, I'm always going to ask her, like, do you want to go to the gym with me? And if she's saying no, and like, I can tell like, okay, if if I have to like force her to go, then I'm not, I'm just not going to train that day. And I'm okay with that being happening. Like, I'll just take whatever I was supposed to do that day. And I'll just do it on whatever the next day I'm going to go to the gym is like the, she's going to be the focus of everything. Like the priority is that she's happy and she's enjoying things that we do together. I don't ever want to force her to do something with me because that's what I want to do. And that's where like, it was kind of a, an experiment of like, if I do bring her to the gym, is she going to like it? Is she not going to like it? And then she ended up liking it. And luckily now I can just be like, like very rarely will I say like, Hey, I'm going to go to the gym. She like, I would say one out of every 25 times I ask her, she goes, no, I don't want to go today. But 99% of the time she's like, I'm in, like, I want to go. That's awesome. She's got her own like she's got her own setup now. I'll I'll hang up a, a bar on a squat rack and like band it there. And she likes to just hang and try to do pull ups and the little plyo boxes I have, she likes to set two or three of them out and jump from one to the other. And she does like fake snatches with the stay. Like she loves being in there. But if, if like let's say tomorrow she's gonna be with me and I need to go to the gym. I'm going to ask her, be like, hey, I'm a, I want to train. Do you want to go do that? And if she says no, then I'll be like, okay, what do you want to do? And we're going to go do that instead because that's the priority. Like I can go train another day. I'm not going to lose any type of benefit if I take an extra 48 hours of rest. If anything, I'll probably have a much better training session the next time I go into the gym. But I would say for a lot of people having kids and getting the negative from other people of like, oh, have fun with no sleep, have like every child is going to be different. Every circumstance is going to be different. You got to figure out what's going to work for you, whether that means 
Maybe you got to wait till the kid goes to sleep and then you go to your training session or wake up an hour before and then go to your training session, like whatever it might be. If it's something you want to do, you're going to find a way to get it done. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing is like, just, you got to go with the flow and kind of take the punches as they go. But for the most part, nobody, I've never met anybody that has had a kid. And it's like, I had to stop doing everything that I like to do because of my child. Like that, that just never happens. Nobody's like, my child takes up 100% of my time all the time, every day. I can't do anything I like. Like I've never heard that before. And I've got friends with kids, family, like obviously. So it's just like, you'll figure out a way to do whatever it is that you want to do. You're just probably going to have to be a little bit flexible, but the older she gets, the easier it's becoming. Like she's going to turn four and she goes to daycare during the day so I can train during the day and do all that kind of stuff. So if it is difficult, the difficult time is going to be, you know, a short period of time in terms of the overall timeline of everything. And you just go through it at your pace or whatever your schedule is going to allow. And then eventually you'll get back to whatever it was. I'm, uh, I imagine Icelandic daycare is raiding other villages or, or like pretend raids or something <laughs> like that. Um, they have pretend raids during the day. They just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> drop uh, her off, they have yeah. breakfast and then they go run around outside and attack the <laughs> playground. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm huge on team dad getting it done. You know, I think it's like you, like you say, you'll make it happen if you want it to happen. And if you don't, it's not your kid's fault. It's, it's your fault for not making the moves that you need to do. 100%. Uh, you go on a jail, sir? No, uh, Blaine, we're so appreciative of you taking the time to come in and chat to us today. If people want to follow you, if people want to go and see your main body of work, is it Instagram? Is it YouTube? Where's the best place to find you? I mean, if you just want to see highlights, go to Instagram. I do have a YouTube channel and I've, I have a lot of the training I was doing during bobsled on there. Like I probably got a hundred videos uh there isn't an actual like entire period where i filmed every single session every single day and i even put the workouts in all the like the bios where like if you go back to my first video and then you just follow along there's literally a 12-week program that's in that bit like (laughs) you just click on the first video there's the whole workout's going to be there you could follow it but that'll be everything i did while i was bobsledding recent like more recently it's the stuff i'm doing to kind of get ready for the meet and then i'm trying to like i've transitioned into the coach phase now where it's like i'm trying to give tidbits of like why you do this or why you do that so instagram for the highlights and just see some cool stuff youtube is where you'll get a little bit more info and kind of insight on the training in whole the the youtube is just blaine mcconnell you'll find it on there instagram is story poppy which is Icelandic for Big Daddy. I was wondering about that. I was actually. always wondering. Yeah, I was like, was just, yeah, I was like, what the fuck is that? Uh, it started off as a joke and then it stuck, and I just think it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll we'll have links to to both of those down in the bio or down in the description of the video anyway, so you can just go and click them there. Um, Blaine, thanks again. It's been an absolute pleasure. I have one more thanks question. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Blaine, what's your best back squat? Did you ever test a single when you were in your best back squat shape? Mm, no, I don't. Th- I never. I very rarely. Have, I don't think I've ever done a single. Okay. I've done triple at two fifty. I've done a double at two sixty. I think the double at two sixty is the heaviest I've ever done. Okay, so maybe two seventy, seventy five potentially. So. Yeah, I would say that's probably the upper end of. If I were to do a one rep, that would be it. Nice. Nice. Thank you so much, Blaine. Really appreciate your time. 
Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you.